this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. This is the reading for the 16th Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as Proper 19, in the Year B cycle of the lectionary. It also happens to be the reading for September 12, 2021. The text today I'd like to look at in three different parts by looking first at verses 1 through 4, then verses 5 to 8, and then finally verses 9 to 12. In verses 1 to 4, the author lays out for us the power of the word, or power of word. And specifically in verse 1, it says, let not many of you become teachers. So what we learn from the very first verse is that this entire section is primarily aimed at those who occupy the teaching office within the life of the church. Now, the lessons that we're going to look at about the tongue and the, the words that come forth from us are universal. They, they really apply to every human being. The focus of this text is on those who assume this place of leadership or teaching within the body of Christ. Notice even in that first verse, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Notice the first person pronoun, we. So the writer of the book of James is including themselves within this particular teaching. So they're, they're not writing as an external uh, a factor in this equation, but an internal factor. They're part of this same kind of teaching community. That this teaching is, is about power and influence, and it was regarded that way in the ancient world, that one who stepped into this role, even in the life of the church, enjoyed a position of influence and respect. And it's for this reason that the writer tells us, be careful about this. Let not many of you become teachers, is what it says in verse 1. And the reason why is that those who step into this teaching role will incur a stricter judgment, that there's an accountability for being in this particular role. And what we find here is something very, very important, that in verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. There's a universal error here just waiting to happen. And this acknowledgement that we all stumble in many ways in verse 2 is the beginning of wisdom within the, the Jewish tradition. And in quite a few instances throughout this text, we're going to find that the words that we say, the speech that we offer, they're in a sense a diagnostic, if you will, of sanctification. They, they help us understand who we are and where we are within the community of Christ based on how we use these words. The writer then tells us that this, this truth about how we use our words has an effect on the entire body. This word for body in Greek is soma. And it's the same word Paul uses in his writings. Now, soma, this word for body, is not only an individual reference, but it's also a corporate reference. The, word, the way Paul uses it in his writings is when he refers to the body of Christ. This is the soma, if you will. And so as the writer is moving through this third chapter of James, we find kind of this mixed metaphor around this word body. Sometimes body refers to the individual. Sometimes it refers to individuals. Sometimes it refers to corporate body. Sometimes it refers to the church. 
at times it's even hard to determine what exactly the writer means by the use of this notion of, of body. But what we need to acknowledge here is that the way in which words are used and the leadership function that are the leadership function occupied by leaders in the early church was an important place of influence with the acknowledgement that in verse 2 we all stumble in many ways. As a matter of fact, the, the author even goes on to kind of suggest in the verse 2 that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This is kind of a utopian vision, as if there's anybody who does not stumble in what he or she has to say. Of course, everyone stumbles in this. And so we should be careful about aspiring to these places. And the, the writer talks about the power of word in two different metaphors. One is in verse 3, the other is in verse 4. In verse 3, we read about how the, the words we use are like the bits put into a horse's mouth. And the same way in verse 4 with the ship also, that no matter how great and strong the winds are, ships are still directed by a very small rudder, it says in verse 4, to the inclination that the pilot desires. In the ancient world, these were really the only two things you could navigate— a horse or a ship. Uh, these were the primary ways of locomotion other than just walking if you wanted to go from one place to another. And what the writer is lifting up here is that both of these methods of getting around, a horse and a ship, are controlled by a very small thing. And in the same way for us who occupy this place of a teaching role in any capacity, that we have the capacity to govern or to shape the life of community in distinct ways. And that really opens up to me what I think is the key passageway of these first four verses, is that leadership must be sought reluctantly because it exacts an accountability. Leadership must be sought reluctantly for it exacts an accountability. You know, I have to confess, I'm a member of Generation X, and so we, we kind of look at people who aspire to authority with a degree of suspicion from a, our cultural lens that at least my generation lives in. And so the text is lifting up to us that we perhaps want to look at those who aspire to great positions of leadership with some sense of suspicion. It's back to verse one, let not many of you become teachers. What we say and how we lead are held to an account. And the account just isn't to the group of people that we lead or even to our naysayers. No, the text is making it clear that we're held to what's called an eschatological account. There is an account at the end of time, a judgment, a reckoning, if you will. It even says in verse 1, that is not so much exacted by the community, but indeed by the Lord. What we say and how we lead are held to an account. And so the fruit of that, the fruit of, the, of our stewardship of our words is in the followers that it creates. Do we create communities of life-giving followers, or, as we'll learn in a little bit, do we create communities of death-dealing followers as leaders? Leadership must be sought reluctantly. We have to be careful with it, because it comes with an accountability that is exacting. If we move to the second section in this text, verses 5 to 8, the writer goes at length to talk about the wreckage that words can bring, the wreckage of word in verses 5 to 8. This is a really problematic section in the book of James because there's some mixed metaphors going on this section in this section between different notions of hell and specifically Greek and Jewish notions of hell. 
you know, the writer at the time of the writing of this particular passage uh, and this particular epistle is kind of at the intersection of what's called a cosmology of evil. In other words, the way in which the evil cosmos is explained within Greek philosophy and culture is very different than in a Jewish notion of the same thing. In Greek notions of hell, which by the way, hell is a Greek word, not a Hebrew word, these notions of hell functions more of descriptions. So our idea of fire, of heat, of underworld, these come to us out of a very Greek understanding of what the underworld is like. Whereas in the Hebrew notion or the Jewish notion of hell, as it were, is really dominated by an idiom called Gehenna. And Gehenna is an actual place, and it references a place outside of Jerusalem where the dump was, where they would burn all the trash, and the fire at the dump, because they would burn the trash there, never went out. It was always burning. And so the the reference to Gehenna as being eternal fire kind of made sense to all of those in the Palestinian world that would have understood what uh, what that meant. You see, fire as a purifier and a destroyer are common among Greek philosophers. They understood fire to have this double-edged meaning to it, that it purifies things, but it also destroys and consumes things. And for us within the Christian community, fast forward 2,000 years later, our popular notion of hell is actually a confluence. In other words, it's a combination of all of these Greek adjectives, fire, heat, underworld, and the Hebrew notion of location, the dump, where every, all where trash is burned. And what I would like to suggest as we look at this particular section in verses 5 to 8, that our idea of hell and fire is really more informed by, uh, for example, a Dante's Inferno than any kind of biblical theology. So I'll just encourage us as we read the section, remember that This passage in James is at a bit of an intersection between kind of Greek and Jewish worldviews, and it's a little confusing to sort out which one we're talking about at any given moment as we look at a particular verse. The writer says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how to great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue boasts great things. And it's like a fire. And of course, being from California as I am, I'm well acquainted with what fires look like. And there are others in my state that are much more acquainted with what a forest fire or a wildfire might look like. The writer is making reference to the very same idea that a very small spark or a very small fire can give rise to a tremendous amount of destruction. And Again, here we read in this particular section in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body. There's that word body again, soma, yet it boasts of great things. And goes on to talk about how the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire, here it is again, body or soma. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Such a compelling passage of scripture but what the writer's trying to get at here is that this fire of that the tongue can ignite inflicts damage internally and externally. And it's a play on the word soma, again, body. Sometimes it's the body of Christ, in other words, the community, or sometimes it's the individual body. 
And so if you try to decide which one it is, you've kind of already flunked the question. The idea is to kind of hold all of that, the internal and external, the individual and the corporate, that the, the fire that is set about by the tongue affects all of those things. And even so much so that the writer talks about how this fire is um, kind of sets the course of our lives. That's an idiom that comes out of Greek culture, and it's this Greek notion that our lives are driven by destiny, so that if we embrace a life of um, careless words, we will find that it dominates us, it consumes us, it completely takes over our lives. But what's interesting in this particular text in verse 6, it says that this fire is set on fire by hell. So the writer's trying to tell us that not only do we have discretion and choice when it comes to our words, but that the very source of words that destroy is inspired by kind of demonic forces that are embodied in us. It's a really interesting passage of scripture here that's trying to help us understand the destructive power of words. It takes a very small spark to ignite a flame that destroys internally and externally, personally, individually, and corporately. And that's really our key passageway from this particular section, that words can wreak havoc both internally and externally and individually and corporately. And that this convoluted section of the epistle right here in these verses, verses five to eight, points to how words cannot clearly be understood. Let me explain. The effect of our words is clear. So it's not so much a matter of knowledge. Do you know the right words? Do you know what words matter? It's a matter of wisdom. So let's think for a moment reflectively. When we make mistakes with words, it's usually, not always, but usually not because we don't know what the words mean. It actually is more a matter of not caring, of being careless. And so when it comes to words, it's not so much a matter of amassing knowledge about words as it is a matter of amassing wisdom to know how to use words. And James, the writer of this epistle, appeals to wisdom, this wisdom that comes from God alone. This God is the only person that can possibly govern our words. Even the text as we read it down in verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What the writer is wanting us to understand is that only God can tame words through the impartation of wisdom. Words can wreak havoc both internally and externally, individually and corporately. And we need to learn that what we need here is wisdom with our words, not just knowledge about words. This final section that we come to in James chapter 3, verses 9 to 12, takes us back to the Genesis story, if you will. It says in verse 9, with it, in other words, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. It takes us all the way back to the Genesis story and this notion of blessing and curse. There's a rich, rich Jewish theology and wisdom teaching around blessings and curses. If we read just through the Jewish scriptures, we can read time and time again about the power of blessing and the power of cursing. And there are many references to how this works between persons and people. What's interesting here is what the writer's referring to is the image of God, and namely the image of God in each other. So how is it we can come before God in some liturgical or worship 
in worshipful context and bless God and then turn and curse people that are made in the likeness of God. And the writer's lifting up the the fact that this is just ridiculous. There's no way to maintain this kind of hypocrisy. How can we bless God and yet curse that very same image in other people? It's impossible. Both can't be true. And, And the fact that both happen, that we can bless and curse with our words, actually points to our failure. And and this is what James means by being doubting or double-minded. We read these phrases throughout the epistle. It's not so much that we have questions or we have wonderings or we kind of have uncertainties. No, what James is referring to in doubting and being double-minded is that we're trying to engage in two different kinds of contradictory behavior. It's quite possible to hold conflicting ideas in our mind It's quite a different thing to embody hypocrisy. And that's what James is calling out here. It's about hypocrisy grounded in an informed and yet foolish mindset. Yes, we can be knowing and foolish all at the same time. And Judaism, this wisdom tradition through Judaism, places primacy on wisdom over knowledge. It's not what you know. It's how you use what you know. And there's a ton of examples here as the writer concludes this section. It says, does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. These are all images from the ancient world that make complete sense. How is it we can bless and curse with the words that we say? And the key passageway here is this. The pathway to redeem our words is to recognize the image of God everywhere we see it. Can we see others as God does? But I think more importantly than that, can we see others as God is actually within them? This is the heart of of Wesleyan prevenient grace, that the grace of God is at work in all of our lives before we're even aware of it. It recognizes that God is in and at work in all people. So really what we're left with is not the knowledge of words. What we're left with is the wisdom to understand how our words can either be life-giving as God's words were at creation. Remember, God spoke everything into being. Or Are we going to offer death-dealing words that light fires and destroy things? Our words can be life-giving. They can be death-dealing. And what James is lifting up to us is that we need the wisdom to use our words, not just knowledge. Knowing the difference is useless without the wisdom to choose. And that's it for this week. I want to give again many thanks to the Reverend Deborah Brady and the great people of the First UMC of Modesto. They're using this podcast as a part of their sermon series on the book of James. I hope that you're blessed by passages as you prepare to receive the sermon this Sunday. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.